there's rumors in the Twitter sphere. Kind of on the topic for today. Love a role on the mat. On the mats. Say on the mat tonight. On the mat. Go on the mats. On the mat. On the mat. So glad you could make it out tonight. I, uh, I really appreciate y'all bringing me on the show. Good to go. Oh, yeah! Katie is shadow banned once again. Stop! I think Jamie's shadow banned. Oh, I, I think her. that's the problem. Oh, I got I'll start talking shit about you. Thanks, Jamie. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> okay, so Katie, say something. Hello. I'm not really shadow banned. I'm a good oh. person. So good to hear your voice. Yay! My halfway sick voice again. All right, you looked healthy when I saw you at the gym. I appreciate that. I definitely had like a really sore throat for a little while, but like I'm feeling a lot better now. All right, so we're up and running now. Let's go ahead and get it started. It is February 21st on the mat episode. We're talking about tournament rule sets today. I'm here with Katie Petty, as always. Jamie's with us. Jamie's done a ton of competitions, and you've been on this trek with us since the beginning. So I'm glad we could get together and hit the second episode of the year. Welcome, guys. Thank you guys for taking some time out. Very happy to be here. Also super happy to be here. Uh, Katie, it was your idea to do tournament rule sets, right? Yes, I think that's so interesting. Like, it's such a hot topic constantly. And I was really interested in just like hearing what you guys had to say or what y'all thought about them. It is a good one. And you've gone to a ton of tournaments. You, you probably got more tournament exposure now than anybody at the gym. Just being around all those different tournaments, I'd love to see what you have to say. I view it as a coach where I'm looking at you know, what's best for the students? Where do we, you know, our students get the best experience for their money? Because, you know, this stuff isn't cheap. And there's so many tournaments popping up now. We're, we're going to talk about the big ones, the, the three, the big three, IBJJF, ADCC, and EBI. But there's tournaments popping up all over the place now. And now people are giving away cash prizes. I mean, that's kind of where the rumble, you know, fits into as well, which we might talk about a little bit. But yeah, that's we're, we're going to talk about the big three, the differences in the tournaments and the tournament rule sets. And it's something very, very important to know the rule set of the tournament that you're going to. First, I put the poll up on Instagram and it was overwhelmingly so far, overwhelmingly in favor of ADCC. So first off, the question is, Katie. What is your favorite of the big three tournaments? And then Jamie. Oh, man. Okay, so that's a great question. And honestly, I think that this is a really lame response to that. But I genuinely really, really enjoy watching all of them uh, for their own certain reasons. I will say ADCC has been by far the most wild matches I've seen. Like, they get crazy because people don't realize one of the big things with ADCC is it is legal to slam in the advanced divisions, um, only in the advanced divisions. But, like, to me, seeing that in person is absolutely wild. Like, I, ugh, it, it makes me shiver. And then, like, EBI is really interesting as well. Um, and then I would judge you man, some of those matches get so crazy technical and like you're just sitting there and watching these moves and you're like dang i didn't even know like that's things you can't do so personally i really like a lot of them but as far as like things that have made me physically gasp and look away from my camera screen definitely adcc by a long shot i love how you how you included that little tidbit like some of that stuff it is sometimes it's hard to watch or you're like watching it and you're like oh my god what's gonna happen it definitely is bringing viewership, you know, a lot more, a lot more views to the sport. Jamie, what do you think? What's your favorite of the big three? For for me personally, I would probably be EBI because that's the way I actually like to compete. That's my favorite way to compete for myself. I, I find it is a, usually an exciting match, like a submission only. People aren't gaming the system as much as they're uh, usually going for, for a submission. The only thing is, uh, on the pro level now, you have a lot of people that have figured out how to game the system, and they will basically stall for the 10 minutes, and they train just to be able to fight off submissions and stall for 10 minutes and then win in the overtime, which doesn't make for an exciting match. I mean, they've kind of figured out a, a way to uh, game the system, if you will. 
but I like IBJF rule set and I like the consistency, but it tends to be my least favorite to, to watch. He got a lot of, especially in the gi, a lot of stalling tactics used. It, it favors people that want to gain a positional advantage and just hold it and kind of lay and pray. So that's, that's my perspective. There's definitely pros and cons to each one. And before we get any further, let's just kind of clarify the IBJJF is the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then ADCC is Abu Dhabi Combat Club. Combat Classic, I think, yeah. And then the uh, EBI is Eddie Bravo Invitational. So IBJJF is very famous for, you know, like like you were talking about the points and the advantages and a very specific way to play. And ADCC is a mix of points and not points. And the yeah. EBI, like you said, is sub submission only 10 minute rounds usually. And, and overtime where there's no points at all in the match It's a different way to play each one. And like you were saying, some tournaments favor certain people's styles more than others. As a coach, I know if somebody comes up to me and they're like, Hey, I, you know, I want to do this EBI competition and they're really more of a point positional kind of player then as a coach i might discourage them now i don't want to discourage anyone from competing and getting experience but as a coach i might say it might be more worth your time effort your money to maybe wait till a naga comes around or wait for a point tournament yeah like nathaniel hey you'll be great for a sub only you might not have a lot of success at the points tournaments but your your style is you know for submission only yeah, durable, and he's 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 durable, and he's good at fighting off submissions, and he's good at finding them, but he's not necessarily in putting himself in a a points advantageous position. I want to have him on next weekend if you guys are free, same time, same bat channel. I'd love to have him on, and it'd be fun. It'd be really fun to hear what he has to say. But he has like I can remember at that Naga where he's down like ten points to zero. He's down ten to zero. And yeah, he's he pulled got- off a guillotine. Hail Mary guillotine, you know, and I absolutely loved it because we had gone over it. Just, you know, that was like his only gun at that point. He had just started. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't have much other than the guillotine. So, you know, that's definitely more of a sub only kind of style. But yeah, so right now, as the poll on Instagram is overwhelmingly ADCC, it seems to be the most popular right now. For me, it was EBI because it's, for me personally, it's like, not necessarily what I want to watch the most, but it's the way I like to compete the most. So you're more of a sub only style. Yeah, for 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 me personally. I mean, I've and I've done well at points tur- uh, tournaments, I've, especially in the gi, because it favors. I mean, it, if that's the way you're going to play, you know, you you end up in a good position. You get the takedown. You know, you go from go from a you know a sloppy takedown into a uh, top half guard. Then you pass the guy's guard. Then you go from passing his guard to side control to neon belly. Then you scoot into scarf. And then by this time, the guy's kind of tired and you're up like nine, nine zero. And you can just lay there and grind the guy out. It's very easy to just hold somebody in something like scarf or even side control. If you're not worried about having to give up space or advantage to have to try and sub them, there's no pressure on you to, uh, to try and sub the guy. You're up like nine zero. So you just lay there. Make a half-ass attempt every once in a while. If the ref, do you think the ref's going to call you for stalling to like move around into north-south or something like that, but don't really commit to it? And there you go. That doesn't make for a, a very exciting match, but it's a very effective strategy to, to win. And I think that's what these sports are doing, whether they know it or not, is they're fighting a battle between making the sport safe, active, and attractive to watch but also something that, you know, they're going to want to compete with. So it's a battle, you know, to, to make it fair and watchable and consistent. I think that's such an interesting thing. Like to me, I, I think about the sub only rule set and I think about when you hop into different rule sets and right now I think I've genuinely watched athletes who are, I don't want to say only good at competing in one rule set or the other, but there is definitely 
like very, very strong players in sub only and very, very strong players in um, points rule sets. And I know that's been a pretty common thing, but now more than ever, I'm seeing athletes where I see them compete in certain tournaments and they do okay. But then I see them compete in tournaments that are sub only or vice versa and they absolutely kill it. And I think it's definitely changing the sport. And I really hope there's not going to be like a divide between the two. But for sure, uh, I know that there's a lot of gyms now that are only doing sub only. Uh, and I think that's kind of interesting. What do you guys think? Well, I think one of the things you got to look at is these different franchises or uh, rule sets that we're examining, well, where they came from and what their purpose is. IBJFF, the oldest one that came into being like in 1994, it was like Carlos Gracie that founded it. It's no big secret or lesser told tale that it was made and exists as just a vehicle to try and get jiu-jitsu into the olympics you know to get it as a sanctioned sport they've been working at it and if you go to any of their competitions i'm sure you'll see like in just the way how strict they are about uniforms and weigh-ins and rule sets and having um referees wearing blazers with badges on on the the mat that's what that rule set that franchise is for and they have a very interesting business model too like, whereas we were talking earlier, like cash prizes and lots of competitions, IBJFF gets like top level competitors from Gi, no Gi, they all show up. They don't pay cash out to anybody. You can be a world champion like multiple times and you're going to pay your $170 just like everybody else. And if you're lucky, you get it, one of those square medals. And if you're not so lucky, you get basically a plastic bag with the flyer for the event in it so it's a it's an interesting and a quite successful business model very successful and like you were saying man they they definitely take advantage of it and they get some high level guys to come in and compete and these guys should be pros but they're paying to compete to get to worlds and and all this stuff you have to work up points right to even go to these really big tournaments you've got to be competing year round so ibjjf does actually have um a paid competition now it's the ibjjf crown was super duper popular um and you can make money from that now uh but yes you do have to um the ibjjf does require you to make a certain amount of points to compete as a black belt at certain different divisions mostly because i think that they get so huge um if you haven't racked up those points it would just be really difficult to run in a timely manner and like world is a really really big event obviously it's like the i mean even jujitsu con which i don't believe you're required to have points was the biggest jujitsu tournament in history which is really cool so i do know that a lot of people end up competing at worlds because it's it's a, a really prestigious thing because you know that you're competing against these super duper high level athletes or at least people who have competed enough to rack up a certain amount of points. Whereas like ADCC, anyone can um, register for the West Coast and East Coast trials. You There's no prerequisites at all. Um, you can literally sign up as a white belt. That's very highly recommended that you don't. Um, and then, of course, Worlds at ADCC is only like every other year and is very prestigious as well. But it's every other year and you have to win East or West Coast trials. But the trials themselves like have zero requirements, I do believe, at all to sign up. You just have to have a heartbeat. <laughs> heartbeat and the required amount of movement. Exactly. Yes. I love all three of them. I've been to I haven't been to ADCC yet, but our. We've got our tickets for Vegas this this fall, and I'm very, very, you know, much looking forward to experiencing the ADCC in Vegas. But uh, as for the other two, we've been to them. I, I've seen them. I love the way IBJJF runs. I love how how structured they are, and you know, I feel like it's it's a culture into itself. If you compete in that tournament and you're working towards worlds, then you really don't have you don't have time to waste going to trials or going to EBIs because it's not working towards your ultimate goal of being a world champion, an IBJJF world champion, which, which means a lot still. That's, that's nothing to, you know, um, to overlook being an IBJJF world champion. I think uh, I heard for us a hobby say the other day that ADCC play pays 40 K. So 40 K if you win your division at worlds. Wow. My personal favorite is Abu Dhabi. I love kind of like the storylines. All the greats have gone. 
Marcelo Garcia. I love seeing his old ADCC stuff. Katie talked about doing only one type of tournament. And you see Gordon. Gordon's the, you know, the greatest no-gi grappler of all time, but you have to put that on it. It's no-gi. There is a the greatest gi grappler out there somewhere, and it's not Gordon Ryan because Gordon Ryan doesn't compete in the gi anymore. But if you know he makes so much money on no gi, why would he? Why would he bother putting on the gi and doing IBJJF? Well, and that's one of the things too is like it's something that I respect about a lot of competitions now is that I guess personally for me, obviously I'm not like a big t- time athlete. I would really have to work super duper hard now to ever be offered money to compete. But that is one thing as a photographer, as someone who worked for free for a little while and is now getting paid, there is a lot of allure in having events that pay athletes. It's a really, really big deal. And you'll hear a lot of very high level athletes um, who are kind of shifting away from even the more prestigious events because they don't pay. And it's not that it's a testament to their uh, like skills as an athlete. It's a testament to the fact that it's very expensive to be a high level athlete. You have to consider like, I have friends of mine who are really good and they're up and coming, you know, purple belts, like crazy high level blue belts who are already going to physical therapists to make sure that their body is working correctly. They're getting super expensive, healthy food. They're getting the vitamins, the minerals. They might like see certain people. They might be paying for private lessons. And then you tack on travel on top of that. Like it's expensive for me to go to tournaments and I'm literally getting paid by people to go. So the fact that there's so many people who aren't at the top that don't have those crazy sponsorships and stuff and have to go compete, like it makes sense to me that a lot of people want to go to paid sports. And I think another big thing about paid events is that more people are willing to pay for uh, viewership and are willing to pay to watch events when they know the athlete is also getting paid money. I don't know if there's stats behind that, but just from what I've seen, that seems to be the case sometimes as it looks like, because people want to support businesses that are supporting their athletes. Like same thing with the UFC right now. They're like, we want to see you paying the athletes. There's a lot of people behind that movement. Uh, so it does make sense to me that as far as like viewership and opening the sport a little wider, it makes sense to me that you want to be paying your athletes because more people are more likely to support you. As not only as a coach, but as someone who's who's put on competitions, that's something that was big to me. I, I remember for me, it was Stetson in Albuquerque. You were there shooting that that competition. We're in Albuquerque. Jackie competed. Itza competed. I remember Stetson saying, who was at that event also, and he's like, man, you know, I wish we could get a little bit of money for that, for this, you know, at least to cover gas. It becomes very, very expensive if you decide you're going to become a competitive jiu-jitsu athlete at any level, even just on the local and regional level. It becomes very, very expensive. And so that's what that was one of the big reasons why I wanted to start paying people for the rumbles, for the matches that they were in, the super fights and stuff like that. I made no money on the super fight. All the money that the that the people put in, we, you know, we gave back to the to the athletes. I want to make sure it's worth it, not only for the person who's buying the ticket and attending the event, but also for the athlete who's putting so much of their time and effort into this, preparing for this event. Because the athletes are ultimately the ones who make the show good or bad. It also boils down to, like, why why are your athletes competing in the first place? And I think that explains why a lot of people will still compete. Because, again, like, there are amazing very prestigious events that technically no they don't pay out their athletes but you win that and that's gonna get you on bjj heroes like no question you know what i mean but for the most part especially now you have all sorts of names that are like notorious in the desert southwest or the northeast that aren't the biggest names but it's gotten to the point where it's like dang like they should be compensated you know and it's it's difficult because you you want to have quality athletes and you want it, you're juggling like 25 different things at once, especially as a promoter, because you want to have quality athletes, you want to have quality fights, you want to be able to compensate fairly, and you want to draw in a crowd, right? And you want to like, you want to have a cool experience for people to come watch. And so I think, I truly think that fairly compensating your athletes ticks almost all of those boxes because you draw in their families who want to come watch them. You open up more interest in jujitsu because now you have all these people who technically didn't start interested in jujitsu, but want to go watch their niece or their like uncle or whoever. 
And then you do have a really cool show because you're having these athletes who are going to put themselves and push themselves to be the best they can be because there's actually a legitimate stake on the line because there's the opportunity to receive something. A belt is great. Like everyone wants that super sick belt, but at the end of the day, it's not going to pay your gas on the way home. And it's certainly not going to pay any medical bills that you might incur. Absolutely. And that's, I think, where the sport is headed. You see now promotions like One Jiu-Jitsu coming out, investing a lot of money in jiu-jitsu athletes. You know, Tom going out there, Mikey, really, they're backing Mikey hard. And they're putting these jiu-jitsu matches on their main cards, you know, right alongside MMA and Muay Thai events. One's a very interesting promotion, and I like what they're doing. I think it's very good for the sport. But you even see UFC getting into it and the UFC putting jujitsu matches on Fight Pass. So there's a lot of room to grow. And I'm, I'm glad that the athletes are getting paid. Once you put money on the line, you get better matches. Athletes are more invested. They put on a good show. And then it's when people are getting paid, the rules become very important. Because it's now it's no longer just a $5 medal that you're fighting for. Now it could be $1,000, $10,000. Eddie was giving away $50,000 for the EBI. So when, when money's on the line, the rules become very, very important. What do you guys think? Let's talk a little bit about the different rule sets and pros and cons, I guess, to you know maybe the stalling, the slamming, the, the moves that are illegal. Let's talk about that for a little bit. One of the things we got to take into consideration, I think, too, is that th- this isn't very old. I mean, jiu-jitsu has been around for the best part of 500 years and what have you, but jiu-jitsu in competition form is relatively new. So we're kind of off to a, a bit of a rocky start, you know, with different rule sets and different different views of what it what should be allowed in competition and not in competition and what it should look like. But, yeah, like this is all relatively a relatively new thing like even uh even though uh, jiu-jitsu has been around for a long time and then even judo but the first type of competition really a formalized jiu-jitsu competition we're going back to like 1994 with ibjff unless you want to count like some ufc fights in the early days where which were basically an infomercial for jiu-jitsu but other than that like there really wasn't a a lot of competition, formalized competition around. I had always thought that IBJJF was a lot older than ADCC, but you said if IBJJF was right around, like right around the first UFC, and you have to think they were, those were two projects by two different branches of the Gracie family. In the UFC, you had Horion and, and Elio's kids that were really pushing to make a name for jiu-jitsu, and they created the UFC. And then on the other side, you have Carlos Gracie Jr., who is the creator of the IBJJF. And he's really pushing, like you were saying, to hopefully get one day get jiu-jitsu into the Olympics. Yeah. So two different, two very different ways of going about promoting jiu-jitsu by the two different branches of the family. In comparison, I, I know we have we've been talking a lot about IBJJF and ADCC. We're also forgetting a little about EBI. EBI is really neat in itself too. EBI is almost the basis. E- generally, like generally speaking, EBI is pretty much the basis for almost all sub-only events in the U.S. now, uh, which is pretty interesting. So that rule set in itself is neat. Uh, but Mark, you had mentioned comparing some of the rules. And, like, a lot of people compare ADCC and IBJJF, and the big ones that come out usually are the slam rule and stalling. And people seem to forget that EBI actually has a little bit of a problem with stalling as well. Uh, That's been a little bit of a complaint with the very traditional EBI rule set. Obviously, with IBJJF, it's a point system. And, you know, you can, there are certain techniques (laughs) you can use to stall get points, and then win that way. Well, EBI has this different type of stalling where you can basically not really engage the entire match, not get subbed, and you just happen to be very good at getting arm bars or attacking from the back. And so you purposely don't engage during the entire EBI round, and then you wait till the overtime round, and a lot of people have complained about that. And I didn't really consider that because normally you think of stalling in point systems, but that was a really interesting gripe that people have had with EBI so far. Have you guys heard about that? I feel like when it first started, because of the three, 
EBI is the newest. And it really is. It's different, much more different than all the rest of them. When I think IBJJF, I think advantage in points. You know, they're big on those advantages. And some people, I've seen people in IBJJF who get up, you know, one point or tied with one advantage, and then that's it. They'll stall. Slamming is the biggest thing that comes up when you think about ADCC because that's, you know, that's the highlight there. What was interesting is that EBI is the only one that doesn't have any illegal rules. I don't think twisters are allowed. When I was looking up, I don't think twisters are allowed at ADCC, but EBI is the only one with no illegal rules. When it first came out, it was so fun to watch. But then again, like I said, when money gets on the line, now it's more important to win than to put on a good match. And I saw a lot of people stalling to the overtime. One of the questions I have also for the future of jiu-jitsu is, you know, if you want to make it a sport that's going to be more popular, more profitable, make it bigger, make it more mainstream, one of the things you, you need to do with any sport that's uh, successful is you need to draw in a large portion of your demographic from people that don't participate in the sport. The NFL is a widely successful franchise. You know, so is NASCAR. I would be willing to bet the vast majority of NASCAR fans don't own race cars or anything remotely like what they're watching on TV. And the same thing with all the fans of the NFL. Most of those people, like, don't actively play football. Maybe they did at one point when they were in high school or whatever, but they, they certainly don't now. Like, there's no adult leagues of football. But the sports are interesting enough, exciting enough to attract an audience that either does not now or never has participated in that, that activity. And not only are they interesting enough and exciting enough, but they also have a rule set that they can all understand, even if they don't actually play the, the sport. And that's going to be one of the roadblocks with jiu-jitsu going out into the mainstream is having a unified rule set, which there's even people like us that are into jiu-jitsu. It's not readily apparent to us like what the rules are. We have to check and double check. Yeah, and the vast majority of the public have, you know, absolutely no understanding of of the different rules. Or, I I noticed that in the last one championship when they brought Tom in to to do the commentary. You know, obviously Tom's an expert on grappling, so he was giving proper commentary. But I saw some of their events where they didn't have anybody who knew jujitsu, and it kind of went back to the old first UFC days when they had Jim Brown sitting in the commentary seat and like nobody knew what was going on. And the vast majority of the general public still is, is very foreign to them. It's a very foreign art still. Hopefully we're on the path. I think, you know, good things are still happening. You're seeing like GSP getting into grappling and, you know, people, UFC fighters who are done with their career, they can maybe circle into some grappling competitions, keep making some money, some appearances. But I think if it's going to blow up anywhere, it's going to be ADCC. I think ADCC is the most exciting to watch. I think so, too. I think just for all around like viewership, I think that because of its particular rule set, it is, it's just one of those things where people usually have to be constantly moving. The Olympics would be amazing. And I think you're right in saying that the IBJJF has really, really been trying to push the the Olympics in general have a tendency, especially when it comes to combat sports, to make them as safe as possible, sometimes to the detriment of the sport. We watched it happen with karate. And I do think that if there was one organization that could do the absolute utmost to get it into the Olympics, I think the IBJJF is there. But yes, as far as like what's going to draw the most viewership and what's going to make jiu-jitsu like really absolutely just mainstream to the public in a way is going to be ADCC. And I think not only is it because of the rule set, it's also because of the way they encourage personalities. I think that ADCC has done a really great job of making you feel like a celebrity. And it's also definitely a USA thing as compared to different countries, because obviously like in Brazil, if you win worlds uh, or if you win Brasileiros, like it, you're like synonymous with other celebrities in the U.S. I think the ADCC is really, really popular. And so people can walk around feeling really, really cool because they're part of the ADCC. I think another thing about ADCC, which is really, really interesting, is it feels the most gladiatorial to me. It definitely 
the way that they encourage and they push the pace of those matches definitely feels like you are back in like the Coliseum in Rome and these guys are really really fighting each other obviously MMA is I think the the closest we're ever going to get like the UFC bare knuckle boxing is really intense too um but I think those are the closest we're ever going to get to actually you know Roman Coliseum but man the energy at some of even just the opens is wild because you have people on the edge of the mats and they're getting up close and personal with these athletes who are literally falling into them. Uh, and it's just, it's a really, I don't want to say intimate, but like crazy personal way to bring jujitsu to people. What do you think of uh, combat jujitsu? I like it. When Eddie came out with that, I thought it was a really nice, like going back to the roots of jujitsu. This wasn't anything new that Eddie created. He was really just like bringing back that old school jujitsu philosophy of, this this is a self-defense art and people are going to be punching you, but it doesn't matter because we don't need to punch you. We're going to choke you. And I thought that it really shined a light on the way that the IBJJF has changed jujitsu. This was in Hicks and Gracie's book also, where a lot of people feel that the IBJJF has gone away from the true roots of jujitsu and making like this guard pulling, this whole guard pulling style you know, something that took away from the original art. I like it. I think it, it's a interesting, like, little division subset of it of itself. I mean, I like it to the point that if they actually had it available, I would I would actually compete in it within like age and weight divisions. Like, I wouldn't want to get, you know, beat up by like some like twenty two year old dude who's like two hundred forty pounds. But I think it's it's an interesting part of uh of jujitsu and and it's uh one of the like the less sanitized parts of it back to what we we're talking about with the olympics i have mixed emotions about it being put into the olympics i really like the olympic games but as katie was saying earlier the olympics tend to have a tendency to make things as safe as possible but also the sport will fall victim to a lot of the influences of the uh, leading countries, like for example, judo, got extremely watered down under the influence of both the the French Olympic Committee and the Japanese Olympic Committee because they're the most influential on the IOC regarding uh, judo. They took out a lot of the uh, a lot of the older techniques that were wrestling based takedowns where you your hands could actually touch the legs because there was a couple of countries that didn't have a high participation rate in judo. But they had a big wrestling background, Mongolia, Romania, you had a lot of these uh, Baltic states. And in the 70s, they realized like, wait a minute, we got really good wrestlers. They put a gi on these guys, sent them to the Olympics, and they were just double-legging their way to the, the podiums at the Olympics. So the French and the Japanese didn't really like this because they liked to play classic judo. And they had like several takedowns that where you actually touch the person's legs with your hands just taken out of the sport of judo. And it reflected initially inside just the Olympic world, but it spread through judo as a whole. Like, I mean, they're techniques that just aren't even taught anymore. They're like looked down upon and it, uh, it did water down the sport. Yeah, man, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that hurt the sport so much when I see the original judo and all the throws and then see what all the rules that they've put in that ch that has changed the sport i think it suffers a little bit but well, yeah just the fireman's carry throw like if you look at that the way the way it was done before it's effective you can do you don't even need a gi whereas the way you're have to do it now to be uh, legal in a tournament it's almost impossible to hit Again, judo was originally like that, and it kind of we kind of got away from that. That's why I like like the combat stuff that was shining a light on a lot of these positions where in grappling only you're safe, but if strikes were allowed, you would never ever want to be in a position like that. Again, maybe the Olympics did hurt judo, but then look at the participation around the world in the sport of judo and what it did for it where you have Khabib saying, you know, it's one of the absolute hardest things that an athlete could do was win a gold medal in judo. I know we've talked about it kind of like in person before, but that's a huge statement for Khabib to say something. 
and you know what that means about how many people participate in the sport of judo because it's in the Olympics. Well, yeah, the the depth of competition is huge. It is the it is the second most popular sport by participation in the world, just right behind soccer. Uh, soccer, or as they call it throughout most of the world, football is the most popular sport, and then right behind it is judo. But I don't honestly know if the because uh, it didn't it didn't get into the Olympics until like the fifties. I don't think the Olympics really propelled it as much as what Jigori Kano did by sending out those little ambassadors all over the place to bring it to schools all around the world. That's what I think really launched its popularity. I'm sure the Olympics helped, but judo was an immensely popular sport around the world before it was ever up for consideration in, in the uh, the Olympics. That's cool, man. I think you're right. I just got into martial arts, so doing all the history, background, research, I think it's understated the value of what Kano did for martial arts. And we wouldn't have jujitsu if we didn't have Kano. We would have lost all that knowledge that was saved by judo and, and everything that he did to really push it as a, as a lifestyle and as, and as a, a way of thinking, not just a martial art. We've got Daniel that just jumped on and we were talking about, you know, jujitsu appealing to, to the general public. Uh, Daniel's a good friend of mine, longtime sports watcher. So I'd love to hear what you think, man. You were kind of making some comments on it, it is a tall order to to get jujitsu into the general public and into mainstream. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, especially like judo, that was uh, Ronda's, Ronda Rousey. That was her way into fighting. Oh, yeah. She was fantastic. Uh, fantastic judoka. Especially with the, the UFC, the initial one that was that got everybody really into it initially was Horace Gracie, right? You never know what's going to be mainstream and everything, it, it may change, you know, things change from time to time. Yeah. What, one of the big things that like I'm trying to do is, is try to get this more into the schools. We just started Aggie MMA who we're sponsoring as like a, an MMA club here in Crucis on, on campus. But it's interesting to see, you know, what catches and what doesn't. Like wrestling is big here because it's promoted through the school system. A lot of a lot of the way that judo was, I'm sure judo was promoted through the school systems in Japan. So I think that'd be I'd be one of the ways to get jujitsu mainstream was, you know, get it into middle school, high school, collegiate, and and hopefully that pushes it to a wider audience which is definitely something that I'm working on, trying to get it into middle schools, high schools, and colleges. The first thing I was ever exposed to was Taekwondo. I took Taekwondo for a couple of years when, you know, when I was very young. And, you know, even when I took it, it wasn't what it came out to be because, you know, Taekwondo is a lot of different striking. That's one thing I took. And then, you know, later on in when I when I worked at a gym, I was exposed to kickboxing and other things like that. Everybody has their preference, but for watching purposes, you know, I've been watching UFC for 23 years. I've Mark, you know, this better than anybody. I've been watching UFC since Chuck Liddell back in those days, even back then, what did people want to see? It's still kind of the same thing. People want to watch people stand up and strike, you know, but a lot of the old guard, we enjoy watching the grappling. We, because we, we understand it now, even, even though we, a lot of us haven't done it because we've, we've had good commentators like Joe Rogan and we have these guys to explain to us what's going on. And so to a certain extent, we, we, we understand what's going on, but to the person that's never done anything or hasn't watched for a long time, it could be a little, it could be a little rough to watch. Yeah, I think about it a lot like golf. Like, unless you really understand what's going on and know how hard it is to hit that ball and what those guys are doing, it doesn't have that appeal that football does. Or even UFC. UFC has that appeal because you don't have to know anything about fighting to see someone get hit in the face and, and enjoy it. And um, honestly, right. I do think that combat jiu-jitsu, I know we were talking about it earlier, I do think that's the one thing unique thing about combat jiu-jitsu that brings a lot on its own. I think combat jiu-jitsu is one of the things where, of course, you do have those problems with stalling every once in a while. But now they do have the get-down rule, which is really stellar, which basically means if you haven't, no one's actually taken down in a certain amount of time, uh, you end up 
one person i want to say with butterfly hooks i believe i'm so scared i know we're gonna have to go back through this and like re make sure all of our statements are correct but they do have a get down rule um which is help with the starring but man like i do think that watching someone get smacked in the face is definitely incredibly entertaining even if you know nothing about jujitsu and um you are right mark you said earlier that combat jujitsu kind of prevents that too like in the weeds jujitsu where the lay audiences can't understand what's going on because there are certain positions that you can get into in jujitsu that are technically sound but if you're getting smacked in the face repeatedly you don't want to be there um so i will say that as far as like being mainstream as well i think combat jujitsu especially because it's on ufc fight pass as well uh is also definitely going to pave its way also not super watered down uh, really cool to see that it is very authentic, very real, um, and super duper entertaining as well. So I think with the get down rule now, I do think that that EBI is definitely one of those, and lots of people are adopting that same rule set. So I I will say I do think that that as well is definitely going to help jujitsu into the mainstream in general. There's also the same aspect though. If if you look at it recently, Dana White's all about this uh, slap fight, and this thing is taking off. It makes no. It makes no. It makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> Dana White is doubling down on this stuff. It's crazy. I mean, like the EBI yeah, combat jujitsu is such a far cry from like slap fighting. Um, it's, <laughs> like it's, a far, it's a far cry from anything that normal people should watch. But it's, I I don't enjoy it. It it's stupid, in my opinion, because I've watched UFC for so long. Man, it's they definitely do. one of those things where you watch and you're like, it is interesting <laughs> that people will pay money to watch this. And, you know, I think a lot of it, too, is it's the it's just like it's the novelty of it. When you study like marketing and journalism, there's different things that sell novelty sells where it's like, wow, they have an event where people slap each other. And you're like, wow, is that really a thing? And you're like, shoot, like, let's get high and throw it on and see what happens. And I think that might be a lot of the appeal of it, to be honest. But, hey, Dana White knows what he's doing because it has gone pretty popular. Well, if it wasn't for Dana White, then there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of martial arts that are mainstream. Yeah, I love what they've done with it. I, I mean, you know, we've grown up watching the UFC, and that was our first exposure and a lot of people's first exposure to jujitsu. So the fact that it's grown into what it has is amazing. Combat jujitsu has a lot of a lot of room to grow, and like Jamie was saying, I think there's a lot of people that would compete in it. Because as a practitioner, it's one of my favorites. It makes jujitsu go so much faster. It adds this striking cardio element to jiu-jitsu that's really missing from it. And I I love I love combat. I taught a combat jujitsu class for for like six months. We did we did it on Sundays. It was it was fun. For jujitsu to kind of really take off, in my opinion. Okay, your biggest star in jujitsu is Gordon Ryan. You need him to get off the juice <laughs> and come in and take on somebody like, okay, so years ago, it, it might have been like uh, Fabricio Verdum, Frank Mir. Those guys were like heavy, big dudes that were heavy practitioners in jujitsu. Let's let's see Frank Mir come in against Gordon Ryan, but uh, don't let Gordon Ryan be on the juice. <laughs> It's funny that you bring that up because I was definitely going to say it. Katie mentioned that when you get into competing, you know, you start you start eating right. You're eating chicken and rice and you're buying the BCCAs and all the vitamins. But some competitions allow all the vitamins and some, <laughs> and some additional vitamins, some tests for vitamins. Katie, what do you think about that? <laughs> that made me laugh so hard. I was like, ah, yes. The vitamins. Mm, yes, vitamins. I honestly, man, here's the thing. I know this is a really touchy subject for a lot of people. And I know that they're mostly the two arguments that I hear is either it's a thing of honor and like it's honorable to be a natural athlete. And like if you win as a natural athlete, it's so much more of a win than winning if you're not natural. And the other side of it is, hey, man, like there's so many people doing it or I'm a certain age or I want to compete at my maximum because I'm only going to be this age for a certain amount of time. 
And I do think that both sides are really cool to watch. Obviously, I've been to both kinds of events where they either allow certain vitamins or not. And again, I think that they've both been really entertaining. But I would be lying if I said that watching two incredibly vitamined up athletes go absolutely batshit against each other is not super entertaining. Like, it's crazy to watch sometimes when you're like, holy cow, these two guys, because there's a lot, like, obviously certain things will impact the way that you think and you, like, the strength that you watch too and just the way that people compete sometimes is very different um, than if you're a natural athlete. And it it does get pretty crazy and it's really entertaining. Uh, and I think, again, it's just kind of up to the athlete on what they want to do. I do know that a lot of people real, feel really strongly about being a natural athlete. Like Roberto uh, Jimenez, his whole thing is that he's natural. Like he's made his entire brand that he's a natural athlete. There are other athletes that do that. Um, and I respect that too because I'm like, dang, it's hard. You have to work very, very hard to be competitive in a space where some people allow everything. So I don't know. I think that it is really entertaining. I'm not going to say that it's not. And obviously, I am not out there competing at that kind of level. So for me to have an opinion one way or the other is a little funny. Uh, and I say just, like, compete how you want to compete and may the best man win. I don't like, however, when there are competitions where you are supposed to be natural and you are not natural. I do think that is 100% cheating and I don't support it. Um, if a competition doesn't test, by all means, do what you want to do. It does really bother me when athletes are, especially like, I know the UFC doesn't test anymore, but there were certain times where a lot of people were trying to be on the straight and narrow and there were certain athletes who were clearly uh, being favored <laughs> and were allowed to not be natural anyway. And that really does bother me because then that gets like, like, yeah, that's just like legitimately cheating. So I do not support cheating in these well, events. That, but That's been a long time ago. The, the UFC is still testing. It's just not their USADA. You talk about you talk about Gordon getting off the juice, man. Connor's gone up like two weight classes, and that's why he's not fighting. But he's going to. Well, eventually he might, but it's that's not why he's it, okay. So he may be there eventually. But that the guy's UFC gonna fight, that guy's going to have to fight Francis Ngannou. He's getting any bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I I would pay everything I have in my bank account to see Connor McGregor get knocked out by Francis Ngannou. But anyway. I that fight too, though. <laughs> <laughs> the UFC does push jujitsu practitioners from time to time, like Mackenzie Dern. Oh yeah, we all love Mackenzie Dern. She fought. She fought this weekend. She did fight this weekend, and she. But you know what? She she completely okay. So that's the thing about her, especially. Why did she never take her down? She never went for a takedown. She did very well. They pushed her, and what a great person to push. She's fucking beautiful. Right. They've done that before with Damian Maya. They've done it in the past, but these they end up falling into the trap of well, it's it's an MMA fight. So let's fucking throw it down. Same thing, Rhonda. I mean, Rhonda got away from her bread and butter, man, and that's why she lost. So she should have just doodle tossed everybody in her sight. Oh god. And Rhonda was so bad at boxing. So bad. It, she was terrible. Yeah. Well. There's also a big difference between the, the women she was beating up in the early part of her career and the ones who were beating her up at the end of her career. Exactly. The depth of competition in the beginning of her career was, there were, you know, there were a bunch of scrubs, you know, like Sarah Kaufman and Elizabeth Davis. I mean, Sarah Kaufman was a good boxer, but she was like helpless on the ground. She had like, didn't know anything. And it was just like, she only had one throw. It was like the Ogoshi, the big throw. Like, and you just, if you know it's coming or don't let somebody get close to you, kick her, move out of the way. But they all dove right into it. And it was like predictable as, as butter. As soon as she fought Holly, somebody that understood distance. Yeah. Or Amanda Nunez. That was a two, knocked a tooth right out of her head. And then she yeah, said, I'll go, I'll go WWE. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Later. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh man. All right, guys, we're right about time. I want to thank you guys so much. We covered a lot of good stuff. This was a great topic, Katie. I appreciate you bringing it up. Jamie and Daniel, man. Thank you guys so much for jumping on. Uh, Katie, do you want to take us away? Thank you. Thank you guys for coming on today. Also apologies. Definitely. Like, 
should have corrected myself when I said it, moved away from USADA. They're using an interesting new team who is the same one that the NFL uses um, and a few other systems. So interesting, a few different changes between that and USADA, but also hey, really cool. NFL, um, definitely, NFL definitely wants their players on all the vitamins too. I, yeah, so, and there's a lot of really big changes and the, the system that they're using now is definitely not. We need to have a vitamin episode. Oh, for sure. I'm like, I'm reading. I had to Google it. I was like, all right, like, I got to know the, the ins and outs. And I'm reading it from some pretty unbiased pages. And it's just doing a comparison of the two uh, agencies they're using now. The new one is Drug Free Sport International, which is what the NBA, NFL, MLB, and NCAA all use. So interesting. There's some big differences. I'm super down to do an episode on that. I'm like deep diving into this right now. Uh, and it's really interesting to see. But as far as this episode, our rules episode, it's a lot of fun. I, for, for example, the IBJJF rule handbook is over 50 pages long. So unfortunately, we couldn't get into everything. But I do think as a wrap-up ending statement, for those who want to compete or want to enjoy watching competitions, I highly recommend taking a gander at some of the rule sets, understanding A, what you might be competing in, and B, what you might be watching, and understanding that you're going to enjoy these experiences differently depending on which rule set you favor. And overall, again, I think that jujitsu is growing. I think that there are different rule sets that are pushing different things, and I absolutely love to see it. Thank you guys for joining us once again. On the Mat is always a ton of fun, and I'm excited for this episode to come out just like the rest. Hopefully, y'all join us next time. Thanks so much, and have a great evening. Awesome. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Even as a basketball savant, LeBron James is on something. Then <laughs> <laughs> we definitely have to have. We got an AI episode coming. We've got a vitamin episode coming. I think next well, the vitamin next episode. We should see <laughs> if we can get like either uh, like Craig Jones or Chael Sonnen to call in. <laughs> that would be great. I think Chell might do it. Let's reach out to Chell. He might, yeah. We, I like what Craig Jones says about vitamins. He says, you know, it's not a fucking drug test. If you know when it's coming, it's a fucking IQ test, and you failed because you're stupid. And yeah. there is why Connor has not fought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll be back at you guys with more details and hope to see you guys again soon.